0: Well, thanks for being with us. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua, we are in our fall sermon series. In the book of Joshua, the sermon series is titled for the guy that wrote the sermon series, Joshua, which means God is our salvation. That's our thrust for the whole fall semester. It's about Joshua. And it's about the taking, the conquest of the land of Israel. Now, I don't know what you think about when you think about Israel. Many of us have the tendency or the temptation to think of Israel as this sort of little meh plot of land in southwestern Nebraska, kind of like, it's just over there, meh, who cares, meh, but no. The book of Ezekiel says that Israel is not insignificant, that it is not uh, in a meaningless geography, that it is the navel, the belly button of the universe. Might be kind of strange for us to hear that, but God has a very precise and particular purpose for that property. Now, what we have to understand that is, that as long as 4,000 years ago, in antiquity, Egypt was the grand superpower of the day. Egypt was the, the breadbasket. It had the Nile River Valley where all the agriculture was grown, had the military, it had technology far surpassing anybody else, but up in the north you had empires like the Hittite Empire and what today would be modern Turkey. Then you had the beginnings of the Assyrian Empire and then the Babylonian Empire and then the Persian Empire and some more mm, tribal groups to the far east. And then from the west would one day finally come Greece and you'd also have finally Rome that would come. But there was one road, one road that would connect all of them on the western part of the nation of Israel today, on the east coast of the Mediterranean, there's one road called the Via Maris, the way of the sea. And it was this north-south transit route that as the Egyptians fought the Hittites, or as the Egyptians fought the Assyrians, or as the Egyptians fought the Babylonians, they all have to travel north and south on the Via Maris. That's the artery that connects pretty much the whole world of antiquity. And then there's one road that goes east-west called the Jericho Road. Not surprisingly, it connects the Mediterranean, goes completely perpendicular to the Via Maris, and it goes all the way past Jericho, across the Jordan River, and into the deserts. And that intersection is a place today we call Gezer. And it is that exact intersection of the Via Maris north-south and the Jericho Road. East-west. The God says, hmm, I'm going to place Abram and Sarai and I'm going to have for myself a nation out of nothing. I'm going to bring over an over-the-hill moon worshiper with a barren wife from Babylon, and I'm going to plop them right there in the crossroads. What? Why, God? No. If you're going to start a new nation, you shouldn't move them to the Texas panhandle. Nobody's going to bother them there. They'll be left alone for millennia. No, that's not God's plan. See, whoever controls Gezer is going to be the influence, culturally, economically, societally, educationally, religiously, for the entire ancient world. That's the crossroads. And God says, we're going to start right here. It would be like, I don't know, let's see, I'm going to start a nursing home, and I'm going to put it in the center lane of the intersection of I-30 and I-35 in Dallas. Woo! like no don't do it there's too much happening there oh but god is not interested in these people's comfort and ease and relaxation god is interested in these people living right in that context so that they all have the greatest amount of influence to reveal him God is interested in his people being a radiation, a resemblance of his glory. And so that's where he places Israel so that they will reveal him. And he's worth that. God wants his people to be a living reminder of who he is, what he's like, and what he does. And so that sets us up for our big idea this morning. It goes like this. Look what God did. That's who Israel was supposed to have been. That's what Israel was supposed to have done. Now we're gonna read their story this morning in Joshua chapter four. We've already started in five Sundays, believe it or not, in the book of Joshua. We had Moses who's leading the people out of Egypt through the Red Sea. They go to Kadesh Barnea where they're supposed to cross into the land and they say, no, ooh, scary. The giants are big, we can't take them. And they disbelieve and they distrust God. And so they have to take laps for 40 years. But finally, at the end of those four decades, Moses has died. Joshua has been exalted. He's about to carry them in. They're just about to go into the land when Joshua sends two spies to go and find Rahab. She's a prostitute in the city of Jericho. And she says, Yahweh is God. And we're all terrified of you. Please save me. And Joshua says, you're in. And so they bring her after the conquest. We'll find out about that later. Yet last week, we talked in chapter three, when they begin to actually cross the Jordan River. And remember, the Jordan River, it's a river. It's not the Red Sea, but it's still pretty significant. It's at flood stages. It's in early spring, the barley harvest. It's at least 12 feet deep. It's between 300 yards and a mile wide, plus all the bramble and the brush. And so they're just now beginning to cross over all these people into the promised land of Canaan. After 500 years of Israel being out of the land, it's finally time to go home. So, Joshua chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan. Now, that's a quick little detail that I don't want you to move past too quickly. Because this is Old Testament narrative. Old Testament narrative is a declaration by God about God. That means it is Old Testament narrative is theological history, not chronological history. And so there's a lot of details that we don't get in sort of the telling of the story, which means they don't really matter because it's a theological history, not a chronological history. And when we do get a detail like this, we're supposed to pay attention. All the people... All the nation had finished passing over the Jordan. The Lord said to Joshua, Take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man. Now, back in chapter 3, we've already seen this. Joshua had already selected and appointed 12 dudes, one from each tribe, to to demonstrate the unity and the fullness of the nation designated and distributed across all 12 tribes. And you've got to know how this works, right? There you are in your tent one day, and suddenly there's a knock on your tent wall. Uh, it's Joshua. Well, Joshua, what does he want? You, you, sir, you are going to be the representative of Issachar. And you say, well, you're right. What took you so long? I am Issachar. And he goes down and he finds the people of Zebulun. You, sir, you're going to be a representative of Zebulun. Well, that's right. Of course I am. What took you so long? I mean, look, my body's a temple. Feel free to worship. Who knows? These guys have no idea what their assignment's going to be, but that begins to happen in chapter three. Well, now we're going to find out what their deal is, a representative one from each tribe. Verse three, God says, command them saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Wait a second. You want us to carry boulders out of a riverbed? That's not quite so dignified. Do it. Now, The text doesn't give us a whole lot of chronological detail. I'm going to fill in some gaps. I don't have to be exactly right about that. That's okay. I want to fill in the narrative for you to have the the screenplay in your mind because I want you to remember. That's the title of the sermon. I want you to remember. I want you to see this and experience like you were actually there. More than likely what happened is as soon as the first Levite put his foot into the water, the waters receded. Whoosh! You might remember the waters travel uphill about a 1,000 feet in elevation, 16 miles to the north and then seven miles to the south, all the way down to the Dead Sea. And these priests walk in, and more than likely, these 12 guys from chapter 3 probably walk out there, and they rearrange 12 stones so that these four or six Levitical priests could stand on even more firm and flat foundational ground. Evidently, as soon as they begin to move, God tells Joshua, tell them, go and get some stones and put them on your shoulders. Now, we're going to find out these dudes carrying shoulders or stones on their shoulders got to walk between five and seven miles. <laughs> these things are not little. They're monumental. And now, yeah, congratulations, you're Mr. Reuben. You're carrying a big, huge rock on your shoulder, okay? So he says, take them from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly and bring them over with you and lay them down on the place where you lodged tonight. Then Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, and then he's going to repeat himself and be redundant and say the same thing again. <laughs> Why is that? Because repetition is the mother of learning. Remember, remember, remember. Now, the people didn't hear God's instruction to Joshua. Only Joshua heard that. So what the writer of the text is showing us is Joshua does good leadership. Joshua does and says what God tells Joshua to do and say. And that's very important. It's a great, great model. Joshua called the 12 men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, "'Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel.'" Now, he says, "'Pass on before.'" What's going on? Again, I want to fill in some details, because I want you to see this in your mind. I want you to to hear the ruckus. I want you to smell all the, the mud and the dirt and all these people going across, Pass on before the ark. It doesn't mean go on in advance. Our language kind of makes it strange there. This is a very technical term, like a military procession. I, I want you to imagine like a, an elite guard of Roman soldiers passing before in military pr- parade in front of a seated emperor. That's what these 12 guys are now supposed to do. They're supposed to, in pomp and circumstance, go before, in front of the ark of God the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is his throne on earth. And so they are representatively Israel passing before their seated God on earth. Very formal. Why does God give them that tangible, visceral, kinesthetic marker? Because he wants them to remember. He he wants them to have that image so it'll be a persistent idea so they will look what God did. He has them pass in front of the ark. Verse six. Do this, verse six, so that this may be a sign among you. Two reasons why he wants this sign for these stones that are being collected. So that it'll be a sign among you. Let me camp here for a moment. This is such a significant event that God is doing with the parting of the Jordan. What he will do by getting them all across safely that it's not normative. God's going to commemorate it and he wants to symbolize it because he's not gonna do this kind of thing again. I'm sure they were wanting him to make the way easy the whole way. And God, what's up with your God? Why why aren't there escalators in Starbucks everywhere? Come on. God says, no, I want you to remember this one. This one, I'm going to do like this from here on after. It's just going to be you as a people following your leadership, being together, heeding the word of God in community. That sound familiar? That's God's plan. We sometimes want there to be fireworks and oohs and ahs and special effects. It's not how God normatively works. So he says, I want this to be a reminder among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off from before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it is passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Do you see what God's telling Joshua? Joshua's telling the people. We're going to set these stones up. We'll find out later it's at a place called Gilgal or it is in a Gilgal. Gilgal simply is the Hebrew word for circle. They either took it to Gilgal, which we think is about three miles east of Jericho, or they set them up in a Gilgal, a circle somewhere on the western banks of the Jordan. Don't know. But the idea is that you would intentionally walk that way from time to time. And you would have your kids and you'd be walking along the road like Deuteronomy 6 says. When you walk around the road, when you eat, when you sleep, when you dine. I want you to talk about this. And when your children say to you, Papa, Papa, why is there a Gilgal? Why is there a Gilgal here? What does this mean? And you plop down. And you say, oh, come here, Shlomo. Come here, Mariam. And you set them down. You say, oh, Papa will tell you a story. There we were on the other side of the Jordan. Uh, You were on the other side. Yes, Mariam. Yes, Shlomo. Don't interrupt. There we were. And we were frightened. Uh, Why were you frightened, Papa? I will tell you. Because in this land, there were Canaanites, Jebusites, Perizzites, Hivites, Hittites, Parasites, Agiites. They were everywhere. But our priests, they took up the ark of our God. (gasps) They carried the ark, Papa? Yes, Shlomo, they carried the ark. (gasps) And then what happened, Papa? I will tell you, Mariam. They put their feet in and the waters, whoosh, rushed up as far away as Adam. (gasps) As far as Adam? Yes, Shlomo. And they went as far down south as to the Arabah, the salt sea. (gasps) The ground was dry, Papa? Yes. The ark of our God was carried in and all of the people went across and we knew that day that God was with us. Look what our God did. Oh, Papa, is our God with us now? Yes, Shlomo. Yes, Mariam. He will always be with us. Remember. And look what God did. See, God gives us all kinds of markers like that. Like, communion where when our children see the plates being passed they whisper to us mommy what does that mean and you say it's a snack go ahead no you don't say that (laughs) you explain very briefly it's because jesus loves us it's because jesus died for us it's because he lived for us it's because he loves us and you explain it later does jesus love us still mommy yes he does I want you to have memorials. I want you to remember. Look what God did. Joshua tells them plainly. Verse 8. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded. Always a good idea when God says a thing and the people do it. That's, This is starting off on the right foot. And they took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. Again, on the western banks of the Jordan towards Jericho. We don't know if it was right there on the banks or a little bit further inland towards the city of Jericho. Verse 9, and Joshua... Now, this is interesting. Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan. Now, we don't have any record of God telling Joshua to do this. The the, the inclination of the text is that Joshua just has this personal devotion where he knows that God's doing a thing unmistakably, and he wants to mark the spot. Even though it's going to be covered with water in no time, Joshua wants to have that spot, even though the people of Israel will know, and every time they walk by it, they can go, that's where the ark of the God of all the earth entered into the divide between God and man. The pollutant and the filth, God and his mediators entered in. I think Joshua just worships. So Joshua takes a different set of 12 stones, not the ones that were carried out. This is a different set of 12. And apparently Joshua is able to get close to the ark. So it's not like there was this holy radiating energy that would kill people. That's not why they were supposed to keep the 1,000-yard distance from chapter 3. It's so that they would know the way to go. But Joshua does know the way to go because he's been talking and conversing with God. So here in verse 9, Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Now, there are some people that will say, well, it's probably the same stones. Joshua just set them up, and then we went, all right, load them up. We're taking them with us. Now, two different sets of 12 stones, Joshua wants to commemorate and mark this spot. Now, when he says they're there to this day, that probably doesn't mean here in 2022. They're there to the day when this text was actually written. Someone's probably found them by now, and they're at somebody's coffee table in Winona. I have no idea. Probably not actually still there today. Verse 10, for the priests bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people. According to all that Moses had commanded Joshua, the people passed over in haste. Just as Moses had commanded the people, and then Moses commanded Joshua, Joshua is now commanding the people. It's happening. They're finally going in. Verse 11. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. Oh, this is so cool. So everyone's finally out of the riverbed. They're all mustered there on the western shore of the Jordan. And now the priests bearing the ark, they process and parade in power and presence in front of the people as though the conquering king is going before his subjects to conquer a new land because that is precisely what is happening. Verse 12, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over, armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them. What's going on here? Well, way back in the book of Deuteronomy, as they're going up the eastern side of the Jordan, three tribes, Reuben, the oldest brother, Gad and Manasseh, one of the half-tribes, one of the sons of Joseph, said, hey, we're shepherds, we're flock." herders. We have camels and goats and donkeys and cattle. We we don't want to go over there. That's where all the agriculture and the farming is going to be. We need this rugged land. And Moses says, oh, they, oh God, are you kidding me with this? And God says, no, no, it's all right. I'm down with it. That's a new Eric translation. God doesn't really say he's down with things, but you follow me. God permits it. So those three tribes stay over there. They go to war and they wipe out the people from Sihon and Og and they sort of totally colonize it. They conquer it already. So we got these guys who are already battle-tested, these three tribes. Now, they're going to leave their homes, their women and children behind, but that's not all. This is interesting. Verse 13, about 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. So again, these 40,000 warriors, they now process and parade in power before the presence of God. All this to encourage the people and also to scare the mess out of all the Canaanites who are watching this. These 40,000 are battle-tested, but here's what's interesting. In the book of Numbers, chapter 26, we get a census, and in the census, we're told that every fighting man over the age of 20, so that would be constituting a warrior in Israel, from those three tribes would be about 129,000. They're only sending 40,000 because the rest of them are going to stay behind Transjordan and defend their property, they're to defend their flocks and their homes and their families. And apparently that's completely fine. But 40,000 of them are going to lead everybody else across, and they're going to parade. These are the Green Berets, the black ops dudes that come around, and they go first because their swords are already chinked from human skulls. Yay! And you want to see somebody who knows what they're doing go on ahead of you like this. Verse 14, on that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. Now we're told in chapter 3 that Joshua gets exalted. Why does the text tell us this again? Because it's a really big deal for Joshua. Yes, it's important leadership principle to give someone who you've given responsibility to give them commensurate authority. That's true. You have to have authority and responsibility. If you have responsibility, you have to have authority, but there's more to it than that. Joshua remembers, and there are probably also some older folks that are present that also remember, 40 years prior at Kadesh Barnea, when Joshua and Caleb tell them, we should go in and take the land, and the people freak out and say, no, we can't take them. We're not going to do it. And Joshua says, no, we should do this. And the people pick up rocks to stone Joshua. Can you imagine the shame, the, the, the indignity of that? And here he's wondering, is this going to happen all over again? No, no. God even knows that infinitesimally small reality for Joshua. There's, a, there's an insecurity and a lack of confidence. And so God raises him up so that there will be no doubt. And yes, It is preparing us for and pointing us to the ultimate greater Joshua who will come, this Jesus who will tell his people, come, come, come into the kingdom. Let me usher you into our father's paradise. Come with me. And they picked up stones to try to kill him. And they cried, crucify him, crucify him. And the people of Israel told the Romans, we will not have this man as king. His blood be on our heads and that of our children. So when God elevates this Joshua and gives him the name that is above every name, we are to pay attention. It's preparing us and pointing to what is going to be more. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come out of the Jordan. Why does God have to keep talking to Joshua? Why can't God just talk to everybody? Well, how come Joshua, how come not Steve and, and Howard? How come, how come it's gotta be Joshua? And short answer is, I don't know. Long answer, it's preparing us for more. It's preparing our hearts who are left wanting more. When is God just gonna talk to the masses? Well, he will. The ultimate Joshua, because of his finished work, will usher in a new conduit of communication and conversation in which people like Gergeshites and Hivites and East Texasites can actually approach God's throne of grace with confidence, boldness, and joy. Now, that's amazing, but in this age, there's still a gap between God and his people. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests hearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan and the souls of the waters of the Jordan, of, of, on the dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. That last gnarly Levitical pinky toe comes out of the drink and whoosh, here it all came back instantly. It's incredible. And don't think that the people from as far as autumn all the way down to the Dead Sea didn't see and hear and feel this tsunami of rushing waters coming back down. Now, that's interesting. It happened exactly when it was supposed to. Remember at the very beginning, chapter 4, verse 1, all the people have crossed over. But then God tells those 12 dudes to go back in the, in the riverbed. <laughs> what if the waters come down a little bit early? But they obey. And now precisely and perfectly on time, they step out and the waters come rushing back at full force. Verse 19, the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. So now we finally got a very specific time marker. It's 10th Nisan. Uh, The first day of the Jewish calendar month is late March, early April. This is the exact same day First month, 10th day, 40 years earlier when they had selected the Passover lambs in Egypt to have Passover, to slaughter them, to be the sacrifice of the innocent for the guilty. 40 years to the day they cross Jordan, they are consecrated. And they camped at Gilgal, their first lodging in Canaan on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones, what they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall tell. let your children know, Israel passed over the Jordan on dry ground. It's interesting to me that Joshua does not say, well... Uh, When your children ask what these stones mean, I want you to go hire a youth Levite and let them tell your kid at camp one summer. No, that's actually not in the text. You tell your kids of the faithfulness of God and what you have experienced. He said to the people of Israel, "When your children and their fathers in time that to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, just as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which He dried up for us until we passed over." Verse twenty-four. Here's the how come. Two reasons, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. I'm doing this, not on a corner. I want all the earth to know that there is a God in Israel. He is Yahweh, and he is mighty. And you are going to be my diorama. You're my demonstration. You're my preview of coming attractions. And that you may fear the Lord your God forever. That you may have an awestruck wonder, a reverence. Not the fear of predation, like you're about to be eaten No, 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 an awestruck wonder and fear. I want these people to know. These people in the land, they just saw all these waters come back together and they know, they know, they just got locked in a cage with a hungry lion (laughs) because there's no place else for Israel to go but forward. Israel can't retreat. God's closed the way. They have to now follow their God and king. So what do we take away from this? Chapter four in the book of Joshua, as we're talking about God being our salvation, the reminder to look what God did, three very quick implications that I want us to remember and to carry out with us. The first one goes like this. God uses people to reach and teach people. Now, that's interesting. I don't think I would do it that way. I've met some people. But it's interesting. You'll never see God use angels to proclaim the gospel. I feel like they'd be pretty good. I mean, there they are for eons of infinite eternity and they're just, they, they know, they get it and you don't give the gospel because it's better apparently to be a first-hand recipient of your own foul brokenness to be redeemed and then to tell that story where Peter says that even angels long to look into that. God uses people to reach people and to teach people. We kind of have this rugged Western individualism, this value for being loners and just, you know, being left to ourselves. But that's not how God normatively operates. He's not going to come and speak to you or me like he did Moses and Joshua. Most often, he speaks to us through the wise counsel of others. In fact, God's voice often sounds like a voice you already recognize as you pray, as you read scripture, and as you engage in the wise counsel of others. God's plan seems to be for his people to move forward life on life and experience the truths of scripture indwelled by the spirit and illumined by one another's wisdom. So I've heard this a lot in the last few weeks. If you're spiritually stuck, that's the expression I keep hearing. I'm spiritually stuck or I feel like I'm treading water. May I please beseech you, and implore you and invite you to get in contact with another one or two people on a regular basis and have meaningful life conversations with them. Just walk across the room and ask them to coffee or or come to our women's Bible studies, ladies, that happen on Thursdays. We've got different men's groups happening just about every day of the week or get involved in one of our 15 different life groups at this campus alone or a whole lot of other settings. I happen to know a really good coffee shop downstairs. Just begin to have conversations over tables or shoulder to shoulder. God's very voice often sounds like a voice you already recognize. Or if you're a young couple that's recently married and you've now begin to understand what it is to drive the struggle bus in your marriage, beep, beep, there you go. It's hard, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, she ain't who you thought she was and he certainly isn't who you thought he was. Oh no. Let me invite you, implore you, beseech you to find an empty nest couple and invite them to dinner you pay, they talk. Just You, you invite somebody and just tell, have them tell you what their marriage, what their life, what they have learned is. You pay for it and then shut your pie hole. Don't tell them how brilliant you are. Listen to them. Let them love you with their wisdom. And if you have the availability and the maturity to love and lead and guide and guard someone's heart and life like a child or a student now is the time for you to engage please get in touch with Ashley because God uses people to reach and teach people second point church is a community of memory and hope you think of church that way That's what we're drawing from what the nation of Israel was supposed to have been then. What the church is now is a community of memory and hope. We've got all three aspects of time with these words that I'm using here. We remember who we were and the wreckage of our lives, but God. We were hopeless and lost and outside the commonwealth of Israel, but God. And we are a community together now brought into unity through the greatest common denominator of the cross of Christ. We share in his finished work in our lives and in one another's. And we look forward with great anticipation and confidence to the good things that God's going to continue to do in our midst and with people we haven't even met yet from this rapidly growing community. See, church... It has to be a gathering of God's people who gather together because of what God has done and, and who look forward to what else God will do, even though we might not be able to see it all yet. All the while, loving each other and being a demonstration of the glory of God in our context. Here at the crossroads of our city, I like to think of Broadway and Elm as the gezer of East Texas. The intersection of this north, south, and east, west is all cultures and influences are coming together right here. Does that mean it's easy? No, you would not believe the things we have to clean out of our bathrooms. But we're here to be the healing in the heart of the hurt because it matters. Let me just tell you, reminding ourselves, reminding ourselves that we are a community of memory and hope, that operational definition of church is at the forefront of our hearts and minds obliterates a lot, if not all, of the landmines that so often cause church hurt. We remember who we are and what we're doing here. Third point, very quickly, forgetfulness is the foe of faith. Mm -hmm. Forgetfulness is the foe of faith, out of sight, out of mind. We look and saw what God did, and then we forget. And then we have the tendency to, in our flesh, somewhat passively say, what have you done for me lately? Look what God did. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Look what God did one of my favorite quotes Dietrich Bonhoeffer one of my heroes of the faith said when we sin it's not so much that we hate god but that we choose to forget him our awe leaks we forget but we are called to remember and look what god did we have to establish reminders of god's goodnesses little gilgals all over the place perhaps it's communion perhaps it's things that we have on our on our steering wheel steering column a little post it note god is good Remember, look what God did. Israel was supposed to have been situated on the crossroads of the world. They would have been a nation that was strategically centered right where all the nations would have access to the righteousness that exists when a people are living in harmony with their God. I mean, think about it. All the Egyptians are streaming north, the Hittites are coming south, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Arabians, the Greeks and the Romans are all supposed to come through here and they're supposed to encounter this little bitty pocket of people who aren't that special, aren't that strong, aren't technologically advanced, but their God is with them. Now, can you imagine how that would have changed the world? But see, even Israel ended up losing sight and they took their eyes off the prize. By the time the prophets Hosea and Amos come along, Amos and Hosea rebuke Israel for worshiping at Gilgal. They totally missed the point. They begin to treat Gilgal like it was some pagan ritual and they're doing all sorts of gross and lewd and horrible things at Gilgal. And Amos and Hosea said, no, stop. Go back with your God in Jerusalem. So don't make it an idol, but remember who God is and what God has done. We finally come to the New Testament because God has always wanted a people that would be a kingdom of priests unto him. The book of Ezekiel says, I will have a nation of priests. And finally in the New Testament, it begins to unfold and we see this. Since Christ has ascended, how are people now supposed to be able to look what God did? For that, we have very quickly the book of First Peter. In First Peter chapter 2, Peter's writing to the church and Peter says, as you, church, Y'all, as you come to him, that's Jesus, he's a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Just like Joshua had been. Rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, Taken from the riverbed where God entered in. You are living stones. You're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And in verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, comprised of Girgashites, Hivites, Jebusites, Gentiles, and East Texans. "'A people for his own possession "'that you may proclaim the excellencies "'of him who called you out of darkness "'into his marvelous light. "'Once you were not a people, "'but now you are God's people. "'Once you had not received mercy, "'but now you have received mercy. "'Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles "'here at the crossroads of our region.'" Sojourners and exiles. To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Just like those stones that were set up to demonstrate and commemorate the saving work of God in the lives of his people, we are now walking around. Look what God did. Living stones saying, you want to know what God did? I'm not going to tell you about the timing of the rapture. I'm not going to tell you how many wings angels have. I'm going to tell you this is who I was. This is who God made me to be. A living stone, a a priesthood. And what does a priest do? It simply points people to the sacrifice. We sang it this morning. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy grace I come. An Ebenezer, Ebenezer, just means a standing stone. Look what God did. Raise your Ebenezer. Remember, remember, because you know what God's doing in the heavens? (laughs) He's singing that song over you. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Look what I did with her. Look what I'm doing with him. Look what I'm doing with him. Hither by his grace we come. Let's pray together. Father, we want to continue to be reminded and look what you've done, particularly in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. And so we thank you for the ordinance of communion of Lord's Supper of the Eucharist where we feast on the finished work of your son, Jesus, where we are convicted by your Holy Spirit of all the ways we are desperate for that feast and how much you, our Father, love us. So if there's anyone here this morning, God, that does not know you, that is still schlepping around Canaan trying to find a way, would you move by your Spirit by the voice of a friend or a family member and lead them into a saving knowledge of your son, Jesus, that they would step out of darkness into your marvelous light, that they would be a standing stone, declaring and demonstrating what you've done. For the rest of us, Father, whose all leaks, we are leaky vessels, God, and so would you shore us up again with who you are, what you do. Remind us, remind us, remind us that we would remember We pray all these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.